Hello and welcome to episode 133 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, I was, I was recently in, in Buena Vista, Colorado, not, not Buena, it's Buena Vista, much like the T- Toledo and and Lima, Ohio. It's Buena Vista, my friend. Had a lovely time. It was a new moon, which means you can see all the stars. It was a gal. I, I saw the galaxy. No, I saw I saw the Milky. Yeah, Milky Way. It's a galaxy. Did you swing by the social club? Uh, not this time. I skipped it. We did. We did. There was a car show in downtown Buna. We went. We went and uh, went into town. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harbarger. Who is in the galaxy of stars that you saw? Did you see like John Finkel, Kai Buddha, uh, any uh, those kind of TV. stars? TV, yeah, Yellow Hat, yeah. Uh, no, I I did see. Oh, and so I'm really into when I go. I've been out there. We go there like we've been there the last two years. It's becoming a thing, and uh, I like really like seeing Scorp- the Scorpius. Like it's a really cool and very easy to see constellation and it's right and then i like seeing uh ursa major and that looks a lot like lsv it's very (laughs) you know sort of you know rectangular it's cool i like it a lot it's good and this week's episode we're diving into one of the best new decks in modern in also one of the best color combinations from all of magic i mean that's fine if you don't want to introduce me that's okay i did no no there was no official godfather introduction that's fine I said, also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harburger. That's when you said, who, who did you see in the Galaxy of Stars? I teed you up. Oh, that's fair. Roll that beautiful Dave footage. Reroll it. I'm tired. I've been, I've been packing all weekend. Oh, man. I can't, my house looks like uh, nothing has changed. There's just boxes everywhere, and everything is still out. And uh, I, I haven't even packed any of my magic cards. A little scared. Oh, man. How are you going to move those, Dave? How are you going to move the magic cards? Because when, when I moved, I definitely moved those in my car. I did not put that in the moving truck. Well, I'm going to put my good stuff with me somewhere. The The bulk, though, Shane, the bulk. Oh, yeah. What am I going to do with all these have, comments have and the uncomments? Folks, have the moving folks move that. Well, you know, Dave, just find another room to put it in, Dave. Yeah. I will always take your bulk. Where are you going to put it? I'll hoard it. <laughs> that's what you do with bulk. I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying to figure out how to get people to move it for me. But it, anyway. Shane, you don't. Hoard bulk? No. I keep uncommons, and I throw away or give my LGS comments. Hoard bulk was my favorite Austrian weightlifter from the 50s. <laughs> Hoard bulk was my favorite side character in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Hoard bulk is my favorite Sonic Youth track. On this week's episode, we're diving into one of the best new decks in modern, and also one of the best color combinations from All of Magic. <laughs> it's Is It Merktide Week? We're going to talk about all the best cards in this modern deck that's been successful in tournaments and leagues. We're going to cover Island. We're going to cover Mountain, uh, Steam Vents. Yeah, that's the whole list for me. Just put Lightning Bolt on there, and you know I'm happy. How about the best cantrip in all of modern? <laughs> Lightning Bolt. Zero visions. <laughs> we'll also kick off the show with a breakdown highlighting some of the spiciest brews to pop up in modern leagues and elsewhere in the last week. But first... We got some housekeeping to do. Shout out to the newest patrons to join 
the Dive Down Nation. We have Rhythmic Discord, Eric O, and also Alan C, who actually joined a week ago, and I think we missed them last week. So sorry about that, Alan, but thank you for joining the nation. I'm, I'm shocked that the Rhythmic Discord has joined us because they wouldn't give me access to the Rhythmic Discord. They said my rhythm was no good. You're way off. My ones, I'm all off on my ones and twos. It's not good. Not my tempo. Yeah, not my tempo. Yeah. Well, that's because you play your bass like a lead guitar. Mm. You've seen some of the concert footage, huh? You're shredding instead of slapping. It's true. Also, big thanks to a few people who increased their tier. Patrick C. and Brian M. Really appreciate you both. And again, everyone else who's been recently going up tiers in an effort to get us to the deck box goal. We've been brainstorming some designs for the deck box. Most recently, Stan, uh, (laughs) fair use in quotes with uh, giant inflatable Pikachu Uh next to Teferi. Yeah. Beautiful. I have an even better one, though, that Stan and I discussed the other day when we were hanging out in my house playing Magic on Friday night, Shane. Oh, no. We didn't catch you up on it, and it is just the art from uh, expressive iteration with our faces as the three different people, the three different poses in expressive iteration instead of one person. Types, expressive iteration. Tanner, don't remove my typing noises. It's very important that we keep that. Oh, there are three people, but like you, you can barely see their faces. It's one person, but we'll make the faces much more apparent. I don't, I don't know about this idea. Mm. Also, wizards would have our heads. Oh, and our faces, potentially. I think it's an Ifrit. Yeah, it's one, it's one Ifrit in different poses, thinking through the creative process, which is what we do every day, every week on this show. You know, I'm not a specist, but I don't think Ifrit are people. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to support the show and our self-indulgent senses of humor, you can join the Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support the show while playing Magic with a Manitrader subscription. Coupon code the dive down 2021 gets you 15% off your first two months of a Magic Online subscription. Uh, Manitrader was a little bit bumpy there for maybe like the first week or two of Modern Horizons, I feel like. But I, I, they, I did reach out to them and they were like, we know, it's bumpy. Like we we have we have systems that we have in place where we can't we can't just keep purchasing cards because we don't have them. We but then they were like, but look, it's going to be fixed by by Monday, no matter what. And to me, that sounds like they're going to purchase some cards. And Stan, I think we both noticed we snagged some ragavans and such really quickly this over this weekend. Yes, they said by Monday, which for us is tomorrow, but for the listener is a few days ago. But I think as of this weekend of recording it seems to be a lot smoother renting cards. I haven't, I haven't had those issues with supply in like a couple of weeks. I know others have, and I feel like I've been renting pretty popular decks, but um, thank you for reaching out to them, Shane, on behalf of the show and our listeners. Hey, look, I mean, we've, we've been allied with mana traders for what, like almost two years at this point. And, you know, we want, we want, to, we want to promote stuff we know is working for everybody and, and for us. Right. And so if, uh, you know, if it's bumpy for you, let us know, but I think that everything's been awesome for the, a very long time. So keep on using that mana traders account. And if you're new, the dive down 2021 is the code to use 15% off first two months. Yeah. Now, unfortunately they can't do anything about the fact that Ragavan seems to be 130 tickets <laughs> yeah. right now. It's, it's insane. Um, and the fact that Mishra's bauble seems to be 45 <laughs> tickets a piece, or no, uh, 35 tickets a piece, I guess. Yeah, what are you going to do? It's an uncommon. It's brutal. Yeah, and 
MH2 drafts have left Magic Online. I hope they bring them back soon, because otherwise this is just going to get worse. <laughs> Should You know how whenever a new set comes out on Arena, we didn't do this with the D&D, but we often will do a little Arena buy-in. Should we be yeah. buying MTGO cards? Wow. That's an expensive buy-in, my friend. We're going to start a dive-down rental service, only for patrons. It's one, <laughs> one set of Ragavan. You sign up for it. Two weeks in advance. <laughs> and we just we just swap it around, and that's going to work extremely smoothly. This is a very heavy stand episode because Shane was hiking, Dave was packing, so Stan got to writing, and I'm on the news desk this week. That's always dangerous. I know. I, I inserted a lot of subliminal messaging. If you look at the first letter along the left side of the notes, it reads mm. a secret message. It's just all swears. We talked to you about swears in the past. All right, I'm going to break down a little bit of cool decks today because I wanted to leave ample time for the deck dive. And as we all know, modern format, pretty much shaken out into this very clear post-MH2 set of pillars. For now. For now, yeah. But I think we're starting to see a lot of stability over the last few weeks in particular. I guess I, I don't want to, to to burst that bubble you're floating, but I think that we are seeing a metagame that I think has responses to it, right? Like, I, I think that we have discovered the cards that are very powerful and the strategies that are kind of powerful out of the gate. But I, what I do like is that there's so much new stuff and that there are so many existing tools that can deal with the new stuff people that are doing. I, I do think that there is still a lot of give and take and there's a lot of area, uh, ways for this format to continue shifting. And that's one thing that I, I am excited about. For sure. And I think one of the ways we're seeing the format shift is some of the iterations are occurring in leagues in particular. Whereas the modern challenges and the prelims, there's a little bit more homogeny uh, with the pillars at the top of the format. So what I wanted to do today was talk about some of that iteration that had jumped out to me from leagues over the last week or so got three or four decks to talk about today starting with four color karth the lion super friends as trophied by mtgo user green hide you with me so far Mm -hmm. this deck has 19 main deck planeswalkers and how about in the sideboard none in the sideboard okay so it does have 19 planeswalkers i see yeah i feel like you oversold it a little bit there (laughs) like maybe there was more coming but that's okay yeah, we got 19 Planeswalkers. Most, if not all of them, are in the main. Six. And what I would really like is if this was 19 separate Planeswalkers. It was like a Canadian <laughs> you know, EDH deck. Yeah, it's got those Global Series Planeswalkers. It's like a Dovin Bond, spicy one of. No Dovin Bonds here. Instead, we've got six Lilianas, four Karn the Great Creators, or a couple three-mana Orzhov Usurpers, we have some Grist and some Ren and Sixes. This is a list of good Planeswalkers. The commitment to Grist here is surprising. I was going to say the same thing about Karn, the great creator. This is one that always surprises me a little bit. That surprised me a little bit to see here, too, because it's like everything else is like value, 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 value. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to wish board. Yeah. Well, I think that's what win you the, wins you the game here. Yeah. Right? Like, this is like the thing that's like, well, this gets me the little pieces I need. And then I just create incremental value. Like that gets me my, you know, uh, ensnaring bridge or cage or needle naming something important or all that kind of, you know, chalice, all that kind of typical stuff that Karn's doing for you with wishboards. What is this possessed portal? I'm just going to, let's just read this out. This is something in the wishboard. An eight mana artifact 
from is that like is that a Kamigawa that set? Would, no, that would be Fifth Dawn. Oh, that's mm-hmm. Fifth Dawn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Fifth Dawn, a set that I could not tell you when it came out at all. It's from uh, Mer- play- it's from the Meriden block. If a player would draw a card, that player skips that draw. Instead, at the end of each turn, each player sacrifices a permanent, unless he or she discards a card from his or her hand. I can see how that would have some synergy, right? Because there's a lot of permanents that some of these planeswalkers can create. Like Grist can just make an insect every turn, things like that. And then you just com- combine that with you know something like Possessed Portal. That seems, like, that seems fun. Sure, why not? Hmm. Hmm. All right, are we going to read Karth? What does Karth do? <laughs> Should we tell people what Karth does? It's all tied together by a lion. Yeah, so Karth the Lion, two, black, green, human warrior, three, five. When Karth enters the battlefield or a planeswalker you control dies, look at the top seven cards of your library. You may reveal a planeswalker from among them, put it in your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order, and then planeswalkers, loyalty, abilities you activate, cost an additional plus one to activate meaning if you plus a walker it goes up an extra one if you minus a walker it's one less than what that minus cost is yeah it takes a second to kind of realize what's going on here yeah that templating wow you're like wait a second cost sounds bad cost an additional plus one it's like cost an additional 20 percent off (laughs) 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 only this weekend um all right so it's like a value planeswalker card huh and you know the thing i never noticed about karth when we were talking about this card before it's a rare from uh from modern horizons 2 is that when a planeswalker dies it also triggers again i thought it was only when it came into play that's interesting it's much more of a it's going to draw you a lot more cards than it sounded like at first to me and then of course this deck has the oath of nissa package that kind of digs you up planeswalkers lets you spend mana of any color as you want to to cast planeswalkers and then also, it's got the Utopia Sprawl Arbor, Arbor Elf uh, engine, which everybody loves for just good good ramp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, that's kind of what this deck is all about, right? You ramp, it's got four Fatal Push for a little extra removal, and then you try to land a walker and start landing walkers as quickly as possible and run away at the game. Yeah. It even does have some ability. Like Liliana the Last Hope can actually ping like a unflipped... DRC, it can ping a Ragavan, uh, other kind of mana creatures with a minus two, minus one on the plus type thing. So if you're on the play, and you know, it is act, does act as a little bit of extra removal. And also, she can basically win the game by herself, which is the kind of ultimate you want to have mm-hmm. yeah. on a Planeswalker. And Ren and Six can ping all those things as well, which is another reason that you would have yeah, this in the point. deck. So does Kaya or Zav Usurper. Oh, that's she right. Exiles one CMC permanence. Yeah, so, th- I mean, th- when you look at this, it's kind of like, well, this is a pile of random Planeswalkers. That sounds good. But, like, all of these, I think, are chosen for the metagame, which is smart because you need... It has a Fatal Push, of course, and then... But on turn three, you can start actually interacting with your opponent while creating value in your opponent's board while even creating value because a lot of those are pluses. So that's cool. Or so, at least a few of them are pluses. So that works. But this definitely seems like a slow deck. Like, I don't really know how this deck possibly is going to beat something like a combo deck. Maybe with the Thoughtseize in the side, but... Mm-hmm. When do you think decks like this are good? Is it when you can put together a pile of walkers that are, you know, surgical answers to a specific metagame? 
like a deck that wants to win on the board. Like this seems like it would be very challenging for. I think it, like creature light decks, like even something like is it Murktide? I imagine would have a little bit of a challenge with this, but at the same time, this that that can get out ahead and have things like spell pierce and counter spell and other kinds of things that will make it hard for you to be resolving your planeswalkers. But I think that's the kind of thing where it's like if you can keep the battlefield clear, you're going to have a very good time with this deck just because of the value that it creates. Yeah, I mean, it could be good against like you know prowess fast decks, stuff like that, depending on how the removal lines up with it. If you get a Planeswalker that's just killing their creatures over and over again, that's pretty good. You know, killing Ragavan and and DRC before it gets Delirium with all those Planeswalkers, probably part of the reason that this had any success at all. Now, this deck has zero outs to a resolved Murktide, by my count, unless I'm missing something. I mean, it, it has Sacrifice from Leano, the Veil, yeah. but... Well, Grist. Grist works, yeah. But yeah, I mean, also like you know, you could you could you you see Karn up Karn up and Snaring Bridge. They're relying on something like a bounce with Brazen Bower type thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. is this the, is this the new Jund? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> is is this a deck either of you would ever play? Yeah. Oh, yes. for sure. This is this is. I mean, I would play this and do very poorly with it. Like <laughs> when I've got like more than one Planeswalker on the board at Magic Arena, like I'm always just like, oh no. Oh no, that's the ticker. It's coming out on me. I can't make any decisions. Yeah. All right, moving on. We have Bug Tokens as trophied by Little Dude123. So this is a deck I don't think any of us have ever registered or anything quite like this. Uh, and that's why I'm going to make us talk about it. Unlike the last one, which only had eight main deck creatures, this one has 32. Perfect. 32 main deck creatures and six non-creature spells, which are three Court of Calling and three Upheaval. The rest are all lands. In terms of what those creatures are, there's a pretty obvious shell here, at least obvious to me. I could be wrong. I think the core of this deck is four Lanus Cryptozoologist, an MH2 card, green-blue for a 1-2 legendary snake elf scout, Whenever another non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, investigate. So you make a clue. Let's put a pin in that clue, shall we? Mm -hmm. Then it also has tap, sack, X clues. Target opponent reveals the top X cards of their library. You may put a non-land permanent with mana value X or less from among them onto the battlefield under your control. That player puts the rest on the bottom in a random order. So here we got some, some clues, some clue synergies going on. Along with that, the deck has two Chatterfang, which is another MH2 squirrel. If one or more tokens would be created under your control, those tokens plus that many 1-1 one, one green squirrel creature tokens are created instead. So if you got Lanus and the squirrel out and you make a clue, you're making a clue and a squirrel. So far, so good. Mm-hmm. We also have a couple Academy Manufacturer, another MH2 card, which is... Always lurking around the edges of the format right now. Yeah. It's a powerful uh, card. It's a three-drop. It's a 1-3. It's an artifact. If you would create a clue a food, or a treasure token. Instead, create one of each. So now we're kind of snowballing, right? We're making tons of squirrels. We're making tons of clues. We're also making incidental food and treasure tokens. A couple other clue makers here are Tireless Provisioner and Tireless Tracker and Wall of Roots. Oh, no, Wall of Roots is is, is for mana. Uh, Gilded Goose is what makes the, the incidental food, token, food tokens. Yeah. yeah. On top of that, we have four Urza High Lord Artificer. Pretty nice way to turn all those clues, all those artifact tokens into mana. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And here's the, here's the cherry on top. Three copies of Upheaval return all permanents to their owner's hand. I like this deck yep. a lot, but I have no idea what Upheaval is doing. We've talked, we talked about a similar deck to this, like, what, like four weeks ago? I think we saw it kind of early, and we had the same conversation. It's like, we just couldn't figure out, like, okay, okay you make a bunch of mana, right? And then you, you float all that mana, mm-hmm. and then you cast Upheaval. Mm-hmm. And then I guess if you just have enough... Like you just, you, the just real recast, thing is only, you just recast your hand is what it is. Yeah, but you're only making blue mana, right? You're only making blue mana with the or is it with the uh, the artificer, or maybe yeah. you have a bunch of clue, you have maybe you have a bunch of uh, treasure. Well, as you well. have you have lands out. You have some treasure. You have foods that you're tapping for mana. Um, I think that yeah, I think that you're making enough enough mana to be able to recast your green cards as well. The, all the green cards only take one pip, so and some of them you don't care about recasting again. And honestly, yeah. probably what you really want to do is just like get all your stuff down, try to make a bunch of tokens again, and recast Urza again with all of that, with all that, and make a medium-sized construct while your opponent has no board. Mm-hmm. That probably gets you a long way <laughs> towards winning just on its own. So I don't, I, I don't know how much mana you can make with this, but um, but maybe if you can manage to get up to where you're generating like fifteen mana. In a turn off of tokens, you're upheavaling, you have nine mana left, and then you get to do a bunch of stuff. Like that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's what the card was used for classically as well. I like the idea how of how snowbally this deck is, because I think there comes a point where you have like Academy Manufacturer out with Alanis or um Chatterfang, and you're just generating crazy amount of tokens that run away with the game inevitably. Mm-hmm. Either because like you make enough food to keep you alive, you make enough clues to dig through your deck, or treasure to basically have all the mana you need to cast anything and everything. Chatterfang. I, I, this is this is a deck that maybe one day, if I'm if I lose a bet, I would play. All right, last one from me for breakdown. This is a little bit of an amuse bouche of what we're actually diving into. Just just a taste, not quite similar but different. It's modern, is it Phoenix, as trophied by, friend of the show, Aspiring Spike. In addition to some of the Modern Horizon 2 includes that Spike has been testing in this deck. Spike and others have actually been testing in a Phoenix shell, namely Faithless Salvaging and Dragon's Rage Channeler. Since the release of Adventures in the Forgotten Realm, Everett has also added four copies of Demolich. For those who don't Mm -hmm. recall, Demolich, UU... UU, as in blue, 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 blue. For a 4-3, the spell costs one blue less to cast. For each instant or sorcery you've cast this turn, whenever Demolish attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery from your graveyard, copy it, you may cast the copy. And then you may cast Demolish from your graveyard by exiling four instants or sorceries from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. Spike was streaming with this deck, and I got to watch a little bit of it, and Demolish was an impressive additional threat to the deck. And it led specifically to play patterns that reminded me of old Hollow One builds in oh, the Faithless sure. Looting days. But without yeah. some of that random variance you got from the Hollow One discard cards, like Goblin Lore or whatever, where you're just drawing and discarding blindly. This one felt you're just casting your cantrips or other spells, and then you make a 4-3 and some number of 3-2 hasty flyers. Is my pick from Forgotten Realms actually a good card? Is this a good card, we think? Or do we think this is just tricky right now? I don't know. Stan, how much I watched a few hours of Spike stream this. It was on the background. I was kind of listening to him and when he was talking about it because I was, you know, I was at work, but it was it was my soundtrack for the day. And the stuff I was watching, it seemed pretty good. I think the fact 
that it is in an is it shell right now <laughs> is what makes this card a lot better. Like, it, but like, I think you are right. Where like I did feel like there was a lot of hollow one ness to it. Where it's like, okay, I did, I, I got ahead, and I have, I have some a four four that doesn't fly or anything like that. But right. it does have a lot. It does have a lot of advantages because it, it fits into I think a better synergy than randomly discarding stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the overall deck is a lot better. Yeah, totally agree. And it has that hollow oneness of sometimes on turn two or turn three, you'll cast a bunch of spells and then you flood the board with several of these because you can cast them all for free. And then if you're really firing at all cylinders, you get to then also make some birds in the process too. Yeah, I saw that the turn that, that Everett had where he cast four Demuliches in one turn on turn four. And that was that was interesting to see. I mean, you don't win immediately with that because it doesn't have haste, but... You get to cast maybe a lot of spells the next turn if they survive, which is pretty cool. I'd be excited if this card was good, if this deck was actually good. But You know, until Demolich entered the, the pile, I didn't think Faithless Salvaging was that crazy good. But I really like it here where the rebound is a free trigger or a free spell toward your Demolich count, as well as your, your bird count. And I thought that actually was a bit more interesting than just you know, playing Faithless Salvaging as a Faithless Looting Impression. Yeah, that, that's an important aspect to forward for sure. There's a lot of turns that I saw where it, it just, the deck was firing on all cylinders, were, and it, it happened fairly often. It was just like, bing, 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 clear a couple blockers, you know, cast a couple spells, mill a few things, have a few phoenixes and a, a Demolich back on the board. Like, it did have good synergies. I think they're, the deck will continue to be iterated upon if I know Spike. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're continuing talking about decks like this in the coming weeks as a, yet another cool is it build. That's all for me. But uh, at the 11th hour, there's another deck added to the notes. I, I, where did this yeah. come from? Yeah, well, it came from me because uh, I did want to add something to this cool decks ink version of the breakdown. And it's also a deck I've been playing a good amount of when I can. And it's hammer time now with Ingenious Smith. So. I bet I'm a lot my of favorite '90s trip hop band, Ingenious Smith. <laughs> Isn't that one of the clones that Neo fights in the Matrix? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They were so good. I love their track from the Garden State soundtrack. Do you remember that? <laughs> it's yeah. It's the most beautiful song you'll ever hear. The, the, it was the. Uh, it was so good as music for the trailer. Remember that uh, that trailer with Zach Braff with a arrow. Didn't he have oh, a bow yeah. or something? Yeah. Remember that scene when they scream into a landfill in New Jersey? It's so good. Yeah, it's good. This card will change your life. <laughs> Well, Hammer Time's deck, I've had a lot of fun with lately. We we did talk about it recently. Uh, you know, it's a good combination of aggression, combo synergy, resiliency, and there's just a lot of top decks that can win you the game. And then Luris gets you just like a single card back out of the graveyard, turns that game around. But it won big this weekend. Six pilots in the top 32 of the challenge on Saturday. And four pilots in the top eight alone on Sunday. Uh, thanks again to Bamzing on Reddit and on their Twitter for digging up the Sunday results because they're not yet live on their mothership. I really think what Bamzing does is just crowdsource this data. He's just looking at what people post on Twitter, maybe what Fire Shoes is retweeting. He's talking to people and saying, "What did you play? What did you play? What did you play?" I face this, and it's just like he just puts they they just put this together, and then we have the top eight even without the actual results. So, uh, four top four of the top eight on Sunday Hammer Times, and on Saturday. Hamuda MTG or uh, Hamudio3 on Twitter took third playing with the Forgotten Realms card Ingenious Smith, which is something I think we all maybe overlooked a little bit. 
It has good synergies with the strategy. Ingenious Smith, one and a white. Creature, human artificer, one, one. Well, that sounds bad, Shane. Oh, wait. When it enters the battlefield, you look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal an artifact card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Hmm. And whenever one or more artifacts ETBs under your control, put a 1-1 counter on Ingenious Smith and only triggers once a turn. That kind of stinks. But oh. So what does this do? It e- it's a one and a white. It ETBs. You look at four cards. You do like a little uh, what Ancient Stirrings type effect. You reveal. I think we would call this one, what is it, Glint Nest Crane? Is that the <laughs> card that does something really similar to this? I'm going to look that up really quick. You do that, Dave. Keep going, Shane. Yeah, look at the top four cards of your library, reveal an artifact from among them, and put it in your hand. That's Glint Nest Crane. Good work, Dave. We call that a Glint Nest Crane effect. I, I don't know. It does a Glint, <laughs> glint Nest Crane effect, okay? Uh, so it lets you provide card advantage. It must be removed, or else it can take over the game with all the 1-1 counters you're adding every turn. You're playing artifacts a lot in this deck. And, and sometimes at instant speed, right? With uh, Cigar Desert? Sure. Yeah, it can be a little tricksy there, too. And uh, you play this over Giver of Runes, I think, is pretty clear. And I've always found Giver a, a bit mad. It's situational. You know, It's not necessarily on theme with the deck. It's just not powering up the deck. It's just sort of providing protection if you need it. And I think Ingenious Smith seems like a pretty great ad here. My, my hesitation, just sort of you know, gut, is it does cost two. And I feel like it, it, in this deck, costing two is actually significant. Like, it's... But it, this requires an answer from your opponent. It replaces itself and provides card selection. And that seems pretty great. I also think this is a great chump blocker for this deck. Because not only does it replace itself by you know finding an artifact, but if you're able to recast it with Lyris later in the game, and let's say you don't have anything else worth casting with Lyris, this helps drive your engine. It's, it's just a new tool that helps this otherwise very all-in-aggro deck grind into the long game. Yeah, that's something that I think when anyone who plays this deck immediately respects, or plays against it even, immediately has to respect the fact that it is not Infect, because it doesn't just need... I mean, Infect has the capability of winning long games, right? But this deck wins a lot of long games, for a, just for a variety of reasons, whether it's Urza Saga, or just a, a many, many top decks that can win you the game, or Luris getting back effectively the top deck you need out of the graveyard by just sticking on the... you know, just resolving, and can win you the game very easily. Uh, I'm, I'm liking seeing Hammer thriving and succeeding, but also I know that there's going to be more hate than ever the next time I run this out, <laughs> so well, so I played against Hammer when I was doing my testing for this episode, and I brought in like 12 hate cards, and that still wasn't necessarily enough. I, I think Hammer is just tier one, one of the top three best decks in the format right now. That's great. And also, I mean, I have a lot of fun with that. Like, I really like the play patterns of the deck. I think it's a, I think it's a blast, so... It's the first deck I have in paper from Modern Horizons 2. I feel like maybe, as long as we're talking about Hammer, I'm just curious, Shane, for your opinion. Is Stony Silence the best hate for it right now, or does Sigarda's Aid help beat Stony Silence? Kataki. Oh, yeah, Kataki. Stony Silence is not much against this because you don't really care about equipping the stuff that much. Like a lot of time you just equip it, you know, uh, via magic Mm -hmm. of Sigarda's Aid or something like that. Uh, But yeah, I think Kataki. Is is the nasty one? Will you take us out of the segment while I see if the LGS has any Katakis in stock? <laughs> yes. So uh, that's a nice little fun cool deck. Thanks for picking those decks out, Stan. I think that 
they are indicative of the awesome stuff that Horizons 2 has brought to the table and the continuing evolution of creative brewers out there, uh, the decks that they're making. And yeah, so what we're going to talk about now is something that is, I think, fair to call an evolution of uh, an early succe- succeeding deck in Modern Horizons 2. That is, is it Merktide? And we're going to do a patented deck dive into it. Talk about strengths, weaknesses, cool cards, cool strategies. Stan and Dave are going to talk a lot about Isaac cards. I'm going to sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. So stay with us. And we're back. If you've been keeping up with the competitive modern metagame lately, you've likely noticed the emerging success and popularity of Is It Control, also known as You Are Merktide. No, you oh, are. What? Is, is, is It Control is just known as Is, is It Merktide now? Uh, I think it's Blue Moon that's just known as, as You Are Merktide now. Prove me wrong. Call it what you will. A couple of the Dive Down's frequent guests, Dave and Stan, have a lot of love for Red Blue Decks. So for today's episode, we're diving into the blue dragon in the room to talk about how this Is It Merktide deck works, explore perhaps why it's been so successful lately, how people are playing against it, and also tips for piloting it yourself. To start, let's briefly break down how this deck is built, and then we'll talk strategy. I'm not going to really read off all the cards. I think a lot of these cards are pretty familiar now to most modern players, but the essential shell of it 12 to 14 creatures four ragavan four dragons rage channeler and four murktide basically stock across all copies of this deck there are a couple flex spots which are sometimes cards like snapcaster mage brazen borrower has been seeing more play lately in that slot as well i've occasionally seen vendillion click and subtlety also so let's talk about the core threats for a minute Originally, when I saw people messing around with this, I think that people were trying to get away with less than four Merktide Regents. I do not think you should do that, right? I know it's huge. I know it uses your graveyard. I know that sometimes people feel like you don't want to tax your graveyard by having that many Delve spells. It's fine. It's fine to have them, to have four of them. You fill the graveyard quickly with this deck. Very. And you can just, if it it ends up in your graveyard, then you just mill it, you delve it away to the other Merktide. It's Mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. So anything else to say about, you want to start at the bottom of the curve stand and talk about those real quickly, or have we spent enough time the last couple of weeks talking about (laughs) uh, stuff? Is this, is this Raghavan? Okay. (laughs) Raghavan's pretty good. I actually have a section later about kind of best practices when playing the decks and how to sequence some of these one man threats and where and when they may be better. So I'm going to put a pin in that unless there's anything else you, either of you want to say about these threats. So, I think this might be cart before the horse and Stan, just check me on this if you know you want to talk about something later. I felt like this deck is fairly threat light. And it's not uncommon for decks like these to be threat light because you have to have so many spells in your in your uh, deck to be filling the graveyard, to be doing all the interaction that you want to be doing. And so I think that this is it's a weird it's a weird tension I felt, and I definitely do want to talk about this later and the mm-hmm. strategies is get, Playing something out onto the battlefield can be risky when your opponent is representing or you know they have interaction, right? Where it's like, 
when do I play this turn one Ragavan? When do I play this turn one Dragon's Rage Channeler? Uh, mm-hmm. What am I working towards? Am I working towards a fast Murktide? And I think that's the thing that I think makes this deck interesting is that it's not always you don't always play it in the same way because I think there's times when you can get a lot more value out of a Dragon's Race Channeler than you can just playing it out naked on turn one. Uh, and I found that to be interesting about the deck. But I think the, the main thing I wanted to point out, point out here, and Dave mentioned it, is if you have 12 threats, don't shave on the one that the deck is named after. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. You, Dave, you're telling me you never shave a Murktide for game two or three of a match? Mm, well, we can Maybe talk about I, it more later, but I don't think I did. If I saw like Leyline Game Two or something, I I will say, Stan, you've you've played a lot of decks like this in the past. Yeah, Blue Red Control. Yeah, with this kind of type of threat, not not the same threat package, but like a light threat package. What do you think about a deck when you're thinking about it? When you like Shane was saying, when you realize like, oh gosh, I only have twelve creatures that I really have to attack with. Um, how, how do you, how does that change the way you think about playing your game? I think it makes it much more important to know what type of opening hands lead to certain play patterns. And what I'm not saying is that you need to mulligan toward a threat. I actually think it's okay to keep a hand that's all interaction and no threats, because Mm -hmm. what that basically means is you're on a controlling plan that game. Since everything else in the deck is control. (laughs) It's, it's, it's 12 threats and then a bunch of control spells. Yeah, and you're not an aggro deck, really. Even though you have two one-drops that other people are using as aggro cards, you don't have to be an aggro deck to play your plan, right? Right, but I think it makes it much more important to know when certain creatures are good and the type of sequencing that lets you maximize them. Um, And what I really love about Shane's preamble here was that you've kind of teased some best practices I've laid out later on for when I think and when I'm going to pitch to play turn one Ragavans versus turn one Dragon's Rage Channelers versus holding up interaction instead of playing spells. So um, stay tuned for that stuff. Okay, so let's talk about the next. Before we move on to the, the next package, did either of you have any thoughts about those flex creatures, whether it's Brazen Borrower or Snapcaster Range? Hmm. Did, did you feel like one was better than the other or either of them were essential? I really liked having Borrow out of the board. When I yeah, was playing, sure. I didn't have it main. I played the build that I played this only had 12 creatures. It just had the core creatures and had two borrowers in the sideboard, and that was it. It would have been nice to have Snapcaster Mage a couple of times, so I definitely think there's space for it in the in the deck. And I also was playing around with having Subtlety too, but I, I didn't get a chance to try it. I think Subtlety is particularly good against in like a mirror match kind of situation, although it doesn't do a lot once Murktide is uh, resolved is right. the, the thing that worries me a little bit about subtlety, where Brazen Borrower, I think, kind of is still good in that yeah. situation, of course. For sure. All right, let's talk about this next package, the Instance of Sorceries. The ones you know. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Can we start with Sorceries first? 24, 25 of them. Yeah, Shane, Dave, Shane, what are the Sorceries in this deck? The Sorceries, well, definitely they start with four Expressive Iteration, which is everybody's favorite card that came out of Strixhaven. Yeah. And uh, it's probably worth more than most of the rares in Strixhaven at this point. Um, you know it. You love it. It's two mana, so sometimes it's pricey to play, and you have to really think about how to play around it. But all of these it decks in Modern are leading to tons and tons of decks that have expressive iteration as well. The Sorcery Package is a little bit different. The other Sorcery that's in this deck, a lot of times it looks like it's Serum Visions. The deck that I played had two Sleight of Hand and two Serum Visions for 
not totally sure why it had two and two. I just kind of picked up the list from a five a league five o list to play, to play around with. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting to see Serum Visions come back because you, you don't see it too much these days. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the reason you're playing Serum Visions over Opt is to have more sorceries to put in the graveyard to make Delirium a little easier. For sure. Although I will say that you're also this is also ostensibly a control deck, right? And so you mm-hmm. have a little bit more time available to just kind of like be fine with playing in certain matchups, especially if you can intuit the matchups to just play Serum Visions turn one to set yourself up for the rest of the game. And it does way, way, way more work than Op does, of course, in that situation. So there are definitely things that are just better about it. Yeah, I also, check me on this, but I I do feel like Serum Visions is better than Opt with DRC. And the reason I say that is because, like, you you get the draw, like, you you sort of get the scry off of the surveil, and then you get to draw that card, and then you set up two draws after that, which is almost like you get like uh, more of the Buffalo than you do with like the single scry, then dry off, draw off the opt. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of doing a little bit of a preordained impression when you have DRC out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's okay. I think that opt is probably okay with DR- with DRC too, but it's like, I just think you get to dig weight. That extra card is meaningful here for sure. Other than those sorceries, we have four bolt, three to four counter spell four thought scour, those 12, 11, 12 cards are basically stock. We also have three to four Unholy Heat for some extra removal. And then some number of Archmage's Charm and or Force of Negation as well to help round out your counterspell package. I've also been seeing some decks, some players choosing to shave Force of Negation altogether. And mm-hmm. they're going into maybe some main deck spell pierce which people are considering pretty strong right now. Like I know Harry MTG and the folks over at midweek metagame all played this deck as well this week. And they, I think they all enjoyed spell pierce in the meta right now. I can tell you, I enjoyed spell pierce because my deck, the build that I played had three main deck spell pierce. Yeah. Three I ran two and I liked pierce. them. Yeah. And Crazy. it was good. I see. Yeah. I, I'm surprised. I, I haven't drank the spell pierce main deck spell pierce Kool-Aid yet. My list had had Lightning Bolt, Thought Scour, Unholy Heat, Counterspell, and three main deck spell pierce. No Archmage Charmed in the 75, no Force Negation in the 75. So it was kind of pre-boarded to play against two different types of decks, I would say. One is Cascade. Yeah, Cascade for sure. Because everyone's trying to go off on three. Right, they're not, and they're not expecting it. And then the, the other thing is just all their blue, blue Counterspell decks. You, all, you just have that right away. I, I liked it. I, I think Spell Pierce is a really good card right now, too. So it's interesting to hear the midweek metagame people who are, you know, good players saying the same thing. Finally, we got four copies of Mishra's Bobble to help de- enable Delirium on Dragon's Rage Channeler and Unholy Heat. Mm-hmm. Also helps inform some of your sequencing decisions, gathering information about your opponent's game if you target them with the Bobble, and even, of course, filling your yard for Murktide Regent. Yeah, and lets you play with a 56 card deck. Right. Yeah. Even though typically you're supposed to register 60. If you don't tell, I don't tell, Stan. Just another reminder how good this card is in combination with lots of the cards in this deck. I mean, it's great with it's great with Serum Visions, it's great with with uh Dragon's Rage Channeler, it's great with uh Fetchlands, of course. So there's just all kinds of stuff you can do. Uh, what is it about Bobble and Serum's Visions that you're referring to? It's just it's just you get to know if you want to cast it right away. Like you get a chance to look at the top of the deck and then know if you want to cast Serum Visions, you know, mm-hmm. to draw that top card. Mm-hmm. 
So it's just another way to kind of maximize bobble. Interesting. I, I hadn't really considered that specific interaction. It's like the worst, the worst synergy, but it's still there. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it being relevant if you want to, I mean, level one is bobble yourself to decide how you want to sequence your lands and whether or not you want to fetch, mm -hmm. but also doing that. If you know, you can bobble fetch and cast a serum visions. Right. seems pretty cool. Right. Well, and then even with thought scour, sometimes you want to, you can bobble, look at the top of your deck and go, Oh, I don't want that card. Then you can cast thought scour to make sure you don't get it. So there's, there's, there's lots of different ways to make it good in this deck. Right. Bobble. I, I don't know how many days you have left with us, Bobble, but uh, this is yet another good sh shell where you're good. Yeah. So Dave, you, you mentioned we had done a little DIY FNM on Friday. Mm -hmm. And while, while we were playing together and I was playing this deck against you, you said that you think Bobble's the next card to get banned. Do you think that's just because of its ubiquity and how it's basically seeing of itself in almost every Lurus deck and almost every DRC deck these days? Yeah, I mean that's just part of why I think that it, I think Luris is probably just going to break it. That's that's what it is. Like it's probably going to it's finally going to be like it's so good in decks with Luris, it's so good in decks without Luris, it's good in decks with Urza. Like I think I just think its days are numbered. Mm -hmm. We'll Shane, see. Shane, what do you think about Bobble? Do you think it's banworthy yet? Oh yeah, it's 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 potentially better than Gataxian Probe at times, and that's saying something, right? So I don't know. I think it needs to go. Why not get out of here? Because what, what, we bought them what, for $30 each. That's why not. Here's the real thing. Here's the real thing, okay? Like, so a lot of conversations around bands lately, I feel, and I think for, for very good reasons, have been, you know, is it is it too powerful? Is it does it require a synergy that's actually hard to set up? Like, what's it doing in a vacuum? And I am more and more have been falling on the the side of what good is it doing to the format? Like, what good is it doing? Like what? What is it actively doing uh, in modern right now? Besides making a very powerful strategy even more powerful, it's making right? all of my decks good. Is yeah. what Bobble is doing. <laughs> Every deck that I have is a Bobble deck right now. And I and I think that you know you you can argue back and forth about relative power level and you know the power level of an individual card and all that kind of stuff. And I think. What I what I've been kind of coming down to over and over again, and it's not even just on this card or on others, is like, is the is the format better without it? And I think that the format is probably better without Bobble. And it has probably been at certain times in the past as well, and we're just seeing it pop up again. And and Spike, I'm just gonna steal a little bit of his words. Spike on over on uh, Mistress Babel this week. They they snagged him as a guest, so good on them. When uh, we've we've been sleeping, um, he said something like, "This is the worst that Bobble will ever be, right now, because it will continue to make more cards that make it better." And so, right now is the floor, and it will continue to always be just the floor of this card, uh, and it's extremely good. And so, it's just the kind of card that just is going to improve in power level and improve in utility, and so. You know, maybe it's time. So up next, I want to talk about the sideboard in these Merktide decks before we get into strategy. They're obviously iterations among sideboards of all the decks we've seen, but they seem to have pretty consistent pillars or sections within the sideboard, little packages, if you will. Most of them have two to three copies of either Blood Moon or Alpine Moon. I've also seen prescriptive counters such as spell pierce or mystical dispute um, i've been playing flusterstorm force of negation will pop up here aether gust as well engineered explosives has been coming up a lot 
in a lot of decks, in fact. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do to help deal with either all the one drops, be it Ragavan, DRC, the creatures in Hammer, Hammers themselves, as well as zero drop Rhino tokens or other tokens in general, food tokens too. Chalice of the Void has been popping up in a lot of decks, including this one. Again, to help deal with zero mana spells from the Fafal's decks, and in some cases, one mana spells from Prowess or, or DRC decks. Yeah, really tough to, keep, to put Chalice on one in this deck. Right. When you're playing these blue-red decks. It's, it's, I mean, you probably shouldn't, but maybe if you take all of your one-drops out. I mean, you, no, just I have mean to, you just have to sequence it the right way. You can fill your graveyard and then stick a Murktide, and what are they going to do? You know, there's a lot of stuff you can just sort of shut down, and then right. you just take over. Yeah, someone played a Chalice on one against me, and I still won the game and the match just because it kind of told me, like, okay, so this is going to be the Murktide game, and I'm going right. to cast Bolts and DRCs knowing that they're just going to fill my yard. And then finally, Artifact Hate, pretty popular right now, especially to fight against the Hammer decks, in some cases opposing Engineered Explosives, or, you know, random other troublesome artifacts that pop up from, you know, occasional Urza or Karn decks, too. Yeah, I think Hammer Time has a strong matchup against this deck. And I think that, you know, you want all the help you can get in being defeating it. Right, right. And I think that's why we've seen cards, or yeah, cards like Shatterstorm or Shattering Spree, ones that can actually destroy a lot of artifacts all at once, rather than using an abrade effect to just deal with one. I think Ancient Storing can do a reasonable impression there, too, where you can deal with two artifacts using one card. Do you mean Ancient Grudge? I did, yeah. Thank you. I mean, Ancient Storing is a great card, too, but not for the reasons you stated. No. If, if you're setting an Ancient Storing to deal with artifacts, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> this Dave. gets you more. Right. Okay. So, what is this deck? What is it really trying to do? I think on the most fundamental levels, it's trying to com- control the board and then run away with the game using a handful of cheap threats. And literally a handful, we talked about how threat light it is. These cheap threats, though, they really run away with the games in their own ways. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's really wild that the more that I look at these cards from Modern Horizons 2, especially the two two single red one drops, I'm like, Ragavan, (laughs) like if you stick and protect a Ragavan, it's just like... It's absurd. On and on and on. Well, I mean, I can't imagine... Like, if you had told me, Shane... <laughs> Beeps. Shane, Shane Beeps. If you had told Shane Beeps that there was going to be a deck that would be discovered in the first few weeks that featured only three creatures from Modern Horizons 2, I'd be like, well, either it's a combo deck or I don't believe you. <laughs> and here we just see three amazing creatures from the same set. And both and two of them are red one drops. Who could have who could have foresaw? Well, Shane, remember a long time ago we were uh, talking about Aether Revolt and Kari Zev, and I was like, yes. "This monkey that Kari Zev makes, I think there's something here. This monkey's waiting to be broken." You're like, "This is only his first stage evolution. I can't wait for him to poke evolve or whatever happens in Pokemon to the yeah. next one." <laughs> yeah, poke evolve. It, it, I'm glad that you guys started with monkey because I actually think it may be the worst threat in this deck. I know it's like the worst and best, right? It's, it's, you know, your one mana, two one that both generates mana if it connects, when it connects, and then it also generates occasional card advantage off of your opponent's library, assuming you even want to cast your opponent's spells. I mean, what hasn't been said about this card, really? But the fundamental thing in this is like we've talked about the past few weeks, right? Which is like when you can hold up mana and get ahead 
both on board and on mana to cast instant speed spells either that that are are both reactive and proactive in the case of something like thought scour for instance or just having extra mana for like a legitimate just counter spell and that's just it's just so powerful in what it's doing in both applying pressure and getting you ahead requiring an answer for a variety of reasons both for you know just life total and for just the snowball effect like if you can cast the more if you can cast extra spells in this deck like even a single extra spell means uh Merktide region a turn earlier or something like that, right? And that's just really a huge advantage. Yeah, the treasures also help you double spell a lot or play an extra threat that you then get to protect with your counter spells. Monkey's good. Yeah, Very I mean, the, the awkward thing about Monkey, the real awkward thing about Monkey is it's legendary. Yeah. the I, Man, it's, it is rough sometimes when you're just kind of like, I have a pretty good aggressive draw here, but and then you like top deck monkey monkey, and mm-hmm. you're like, okay, now I have three ragavans, so I'm just like running them out because I'm just like, okay, kill it, okay, kill it, okay, kill it, and then I'll play my my dragon's rage channeler because I didn't want you to, whatever. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but the card the card is powerful and can run away with the game, especially if you you can protect it. But there is that awkwardness about how multiples don't really help you that much, but. It just does so. It you know the the gemstone caverns effect it can do for you is just bonkers it's too. Huge. Where it's like I've I've I turned two blood moons someone on the play. You know what I mean? Like a post board game where it's just like bye. Yeah, and yeah. you know they have nothing. Esper yeah. control is not coming back from a resolved turn two blood moon. Yeah, it's one of those really unfortunate things where this card is good in both aggro and control shells. We are kind of like, excuse me, wizards. Maybe this card. I mean, a lot of people were like, Ragavan's a mistake, and I'm like. I don't particularly like that it's able to build an advantage in both styles of decks pretty easily, but you know, Dave, I, here's one thing about the legendary rule. I wonder if you were ever in this position where you dash out a ragavan, make a treasure token or, or not a treasure token irrelevant here, but then cast another ragavan and let the first tapped one just die. Uh, yeah. That's a line, right? Isn't that like kind of a reasonable line, especially if you have multiple ragavans and, and extra mana. It's a line to turn on delirium, right. definitely. Like I think that's that's probably the main situation where we think about doing that. Um, but yeah, I definitely did that. Yeah. It would hmm. would do that. Let's talk about dash a little bit. I feel like the exploration of dash and the monk uh, has not been done super in depth by anyone I've listened to, and I'm not saying that we're going to do it any justice. But I have. I, I when did you find yourself dashing it? I guess is like the main thing that I would ask. That's the first question. Uh, so against decks where I knew that most of their interaction was uh, sorcery speed was what I was really trying to do. So against something like Tron, where they were trying to play Ugin against me, I didn't want to lose my stuff to like a, ta- a played Ugin or a Karn where they were in exile it. So I was just dashing it in, mm-hmm. basically. I would also dash a little bit later in the game mm-hmm. where it felt like I needed to apply pressure and I didn't necessarily have time to just cast a one drop and hope it untaps. So I, I love Ragavan for one on turns one and two, especially on turn one. And then after that, I would actually more often than not uh, just dash in the Ragavan, especially if I can then hold up additional um, interaction. And if the coast was clear and I knew he would connect. Yep. 
But Dash is, I think Dash gets dismissed by people a lot. That and people yeah. totally don't understand like why it costs more than the creature itself. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, I just I don't get to keep it in play. And it, it's a couple of things. One is haste is really good. Haste <laughs> is like a really good ability that a lot of people don't realize is really good. And uh, the fact that you get to use it to be tricky and dodge sorcery style interaction, I think, is valuable. And so. Um, that's part of the reason that I think Dash is actually a somewhat powerful, and it's it's a good kind of final piece of text on this card that already yeah. has too much text on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just nice sometimes to be able to say, I just want to generate a treasure token here. Right. And like when the shields are down, and just get it in. And yeah, I'm shocking you and making a treasure token, and that can be perfectly advantageous in a deck that can use its mana so well just to dig. Mm-hmm. Like in a Turbo Xerox deck, being able to Xerox even harder, add add one more copy to your uh, to your machine. Why not? Why not? All right, we a lot of ink spill, virtual ink being spilled on this monkey. Let's go on to Dragon Raids Channeler. 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 For, for real though, do we have more to say about this card? I'm sure we do. But like in this deck, um, it's really good. Yes, right? so the, and it's and it's still for me the surveil. Like I seriously almost barely care that it's a it's like a Delvery thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Stan? I think it's a one mana three three flyer that helps you smooth your draws. Mm-hmm. I think there are some level up moments that we'll talk about with regard to when to cast Dragon's Rage Channeler. Because <laughs> it's later than you think. I think this one requires a little bit more finesse than than Ragavan. Like Ragavan, it's probably always okay to lead with. DRC is sometimes better to lead with. Uh, I, I'm I'm surprised. I thought you were going where my brain was, which is always lead with the monkey. And sometimes it's better to let DRC sit in your hand and get more value out of the surveil. That, that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Good. Although well, there are corner cases where I think it is okay to lead with Dragon Rage Channel. Oh, sure. I, I totally agree. I mean, I do think that this is the deck that right now actually takes the most advantage of the surveil, right? Because nobody else is playing with a delve threat, and so. Mm-hmm. you get to no matter what card you throw in the bin if you cast a spell on turn you know you cast a spell you cast a drc on turn one and then you cast mishra's bauble then you sack the mishra's bauble all of a sudden you have two cards most likely you have two cards that are getting ready to power up murktide regent and so um i think that in a weird way this one is using it the most and it's definitely re- more reliant on the surveil than i think any of the other ones are too although it's all like a sliding scale like every deck is using it to um, great effect. Agreed. All right, let's talk about the last creature. It's a two mana eight eight flyer. <laughs> it's called Murktide Regent. Right. Best creature in the deck. I think it's actually the best card in the deck. Do you? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. Just because this is the card that people are contorting their decks to beat. This is why we see Terminate in the format right now. I still think Dragon's Rage Channeler is probably the best card in this deck, but hmm. they're maybe, close. Think, though. Would you agree yeah. that they're close? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a style of deck that you get to build because of Dragon's Rage Channeler a little bit, and because this card exists, of course, as well, because you get to play a two mana giant threat on turn four and have a counterspell. So it's kind of all these different pieces of Modern Horizons two coming together to mm-hmm. make this control deck. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to that in a second. I think yeah. as well. But um, I think it's interesting that it's the best. You think it's the best card in the deck. I think that this is 
I think that there's a chance that m- many different payoffs could have worked for this. Sure, but this I, the other payoffs that I think might have worked, or at least kind of do a Mark Tide impression, is like weirdly Stormwing Entity, mm-hmm. where it's good because it evades so much removal. Yeah, that's not weird. That's just true. Right. <laughs> I totally agree. It's just Baked a different, in. totally different style. Right. Yeah, where it's where it's CMC matters as much as its size and evasion. Right. Yeah. It's like they took some of the lessons they learned from the design from Stormwing Entity and they were like, hey, let's make a bigger one for control decks to use because you know Stormwing can't really go in a control deck because of many because of reasons. But Yeah. So, you know, you keep calling this a control deck. Are you confident that that's what this is? And and Shane, do you agree? Is this a control no. deck? I mean, it depends if do you consider blue red like Delver Delver a control deck. I just feel like this is a Delver deck with the best Delver, like an actual Delve card. <laughs> uh, like this is it's, this is like the suite of threats that sort of makes a Turbo Xerox is it deck in modern work. And Delver of Secrets just doesn't line up with the blue cheap cantrips we have to be consistent enough. I think. Uh, whereas just filling your graveyard by playing the game extremely quickly, getting a turn two, turn three, gigantic flying threat uh, is a lot better than Delver of Secrets, in my opinion, in modern, especially. So yeah, I don't know if I call it control, depending, it's it's maybe the, the mysterious tempo. <laughs> is this just Death Shadow? Is this just a Death Shadow deck? Now you're talking. Cards, which, you know, a lot of people kind of felt like it was tempo aggro mid-rangey kind of stew. I don't know. I kind of feel like it is, it's Death Shadow. Yeah, I, th- I think you're onto something. W- with a more reactive interaction package because of counter spells, as opposed to a proactive interactions package, namely with discard. Discard. But it has a lot of the same cards, right? It's got your bobble, it's got your thought scours, it's got your giant flying Gurmag Angler. <laughs> exactly, right. yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really keen of you, Dave. My keen sense. It does highlight the blurry difference between control, tempo, and mid-range in general, where, you know, similar to Shadow, which can have like really aggressive starts or play a more grindy game, I think that this is a mid-range deck that can either have an early tempo strategy where you have a, a cheap threat and then protection and removal to keep the coast cleared for it to attack, or a much longer control strategy where you just keep the board clear with counters and removal and then close out with your big evasive threat. True. I think I think the thing about this deck is that I don't think that this deck grinds as well as current versions of Shadow do. And it's for I think this deck plays a good long game in a different way than Shadow does and it doesn't die randomly to its mana base the way that Shadow does, right? Sure. Because you have to play chicken with your life total. Um, Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the big difference is, and people, you know, I saw people talking on Twitter and stuff like this. And I think a lot of people, when the, when Murktide was spoiled, were like, oh, this is just going to go in shadow and be the delve threat in shadow instead. I don't think this card is going to go in shadow because then you can't run Luris. And Mm -hmm. so Death Shadow has really become sort of like a Luris deck above everything else. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think not above everything else, but it's like a power, a big creature Luris deck that you get to play. And because of that, you get to go into the mid game where you're like, oh, I'm out of cards. So now I get to like redraw and redraw and redraw and redraw. This deck, for all of the kind of like, this one really re- relies on expressive iteration to bring you back to the game if you kind of run low on cards in that situation. And in a way, it's like, 
it's pretty vulnerable to counter magic yeah. because of that, where the Death Shadow decks are more, uh, more, I think, these days, vulnerable to, like, creature removal than than that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of, like, got a slightly different weakness. Yeah. Hmm. And ultimately, it doesn't necessarily matter if this is a, quote, control deck, right? Like, th- does that necessarily inform opponents' decisions if they think about, well... I'm playing against a control deck first and foremost, so I need to bring in X, Y, and Z. It definitely changes people's perceptions of what they're supposed to do. I, I think it's, and it certainly, I think it also changes like what you think that you're doing when you sit down to play. Like when I, the first couple of matches I played with this, I was like, what am I like? How long am I supposed to wait to play my threats? Because mm-hmm. I don't have that many threats, you know? And so I want to be a little bit more precious with them. And like you said, if I have a draw, that's all threats, like that's not a good draw in this deck. Like you can't you can't play yeah. a game where you're just playing where your opener is Dragon's Rage, Dragon's Rage, Ragavan, and Murktide. Like you're not gonna get there. You need the interaction, you need the counter spells. And so it really I do think it informs what the way that you're thinking about approaching the game where mostly you are trying to be the control. You're not trying to be the beatdown in these in with this deck very, very often, I don't think. Even though this deck can play an eight eight on turn two if the coast is clear sometimes. So not yeah, literally an 8-8 eight, eight on turn two. You can get close if you're lucky, but... Yeah. For me, I feel like you've kind of hinted at this, Stan, and I'm curious what you think is, I feel like the cheap threats, I mean, they're all cheap threats, ultimately, but the one-mana red spells are so powerful in their individual ways that we've talked about ad nauseum, right, is that they demand removal, and then at some point, you get to the, you get to the board state where you become the control deck, where it's like, then you're like, okay, well, I have the finishing threat, and I have the counter magic. So good luck, friend, as I as I beat down with my like six six flyer or whatever that I've gotten to resolve. And so that's an interesting thing that control hasn't been able to do a lot. I think maybe the stone forge decks, the stone blade style control decks, have been maybe the closest uh, in in strategy. Where it's like, I'm a control deck, but I also have a threat that demands an answer in Stoneforge Mystic, and then into Batter Skull or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was comparing Stoneforge to Murktide, and it's it's interesting that you're you're comparing it to the to the red threats because I feel like oh no, I'm control. I'm, I mean, it's basically just kind of the similar idea, which is I'm a control deck that has a few good threats that must be answered, and they're kind right. of adding to my strategy. Whereas you know, traditional control decks would be something that's like I am a pile of interaction, and then a planeswalker or a flying creature land. You know, back in you know five years ago or something like that. Is this version of control utilizing Murktide because the dragon is perhaps the best control finisher we've had ever? Because I'm thinking about previous control finishers such as Stoneforge or Shark Tokens or Celestial Colonnade or, you know, Snapcaster Mage. Holy moly, where the heck has Sharknado been since Modern Horizons 2 came out? That's the thing. Fell off the map. And I would think that that's the type of card that might actually help turn Delirium online, but because it's an enchantment, but I don't know. It's like, why make a shark token that could just as well be a big flying dragon that's always going to be bigger and going to outclass every other creature in the format and also doesn't die to Fatal Push? Exactly. I mean, the big thing here, too, is like, we don't have time to get it to be a 5-5 five, five token anymore. Right. We only have time to, to cast a... 7-7 seven, seven on turn three right now. You know, like, it's it's a different... The games are a little bit more compressed 
right now. Yeah. Though still interesting, but um, yeah, little compressed. Yeah, even the Jeskai deck that was kind of popular at first, the Monkey Blade deck that was running Stoneforge and Culture Complete, that's also fallen out of favor, I think, mm-hmm. because even Culture Complete being perhaps the best equipment for Stoneforge to fetch still isn't necessarily as good as a two-mana 8-8 flyer. Yeah, what are you going to do? Something it's a dragon. To think about. Dragons how, are cool. How Okay, you keep saying a two-mana 8-8, and I did have a few big dragons. I really did feel like the most frequent power toughness I was getting was like 5-5 five, five when I was sure. doing it early. You can't do it then. You think it's too early? Yeah, you can't cast it. I don't think you can cast it then unless you have, du- un- unless you have double, double, unless you have double counter backup in your hand or have a way to keep drawing in your hand right away. Like you have to get it out of my, my take on the format right now is you have to get out on, on holy heat range in like almost every matchup that you play. So if you're playing against a red deck, you can't, you can't cast it as a five, five. I don't think unless it's late in the game and you have a bunch of counter spells, your opponents, you know, you know, situationally sure. it's fine. But like, if, if that's your opening bid in the game, I think it has to be at least seven, seven. I think it depends on the matchup. Uh, you make a really great point about unholy heat. It is, I think next to both the most popular removal spell in the, in modern right now, but if you're not playing against a red deck, I actually think a five five is perfectly cromulent. Mm-hmm. It's never a three three, and it's like not even that's not me saying don't cast it as a three three. But unless it's your second Merktide, that because you already have one out there, I've never been in a situation where it's like I can only make a three three. I, I did one time, two times. One time was my my graveyard was just full of lands because it was my second Merktide. Right. The other time is when I was playing against Sanctifier in Vec where I just mm. lost all my instants <laughs> that hmm. I had cast so far. Yeah. So one of the issues, Dave, you kind of, when you brought up that losing all your instants from the unvec, what do you, this, and this might be something you want to talk about later. This, this tension does exist. And it, I think it exists in all delve decks of if I'm casting regent that I'm often getting rid of delirium. Yeah. And that is a legitimate tension. And I'm curious. It's one of those things where like, it's just the ju- it's just the squeeze that you have to have, and like it, it's almost often way better to almost always better to have a, a six six or a seven seven flying uh, dragon than it is to just have delirium enabled for maybe a better unholy heat or something like that. Because like the threat the threat is always it's not even just like the threat of not having a three three dragons race channeler on board because frequently that's not really usually the case. The case is what happens later. Like if I'm delving away a lot of stuff and they kill this thing, then my deck operates much less good. You know what I mean? Because it's like then my top deck DRC is worse. Then my top deck and holy heat is worse. And so it's like I do feel a big tension where it's like I'm getting rid of a lot of fuel here. Mm-hmm. And maybe, and so sometimes it's like, well, maybe it's better to, to not get rid of a bunch of stuff and then use mana instead. Uh, and that's just kind of the issue I, I did feel when I was playing this deck very often, actually. I think that the tension is real for sure. I, I think that you almost never want to pay more than two for this card. I, like, I don't remember ever casting it for more than two, honestly, in the whole the league that I did in its entirety. Here's my hot take of mm-hmm. the day. Being afraid of turning off Delirium for DRC because of Merktide Regent is the new worrying about milling your own good cards with Thoughtscour. <laughs> only okay. only you did that, Stan. Okay. And, and here's why. Remember when I said that this is the best card in the deck? That's sure. kind of informing that answer and position of mine. Just because this being as big of a beater as it possibly can 
A, closes out the game really quickly, and B, is more significant to you than having a 3-3 flyer that has to attack every turn. Because, in my opinion, DRC is still good as a 1-1, just because of that surveil. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's mostly true. The thing that I worry about more is on Holy Heat right. than, than Dragon Trade's Channeler, honestly. Yeah. But if you play your cards right and think about it, you know, plan forward, you can often turn Delirium back on almost immediately. So mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a there is a tension there, but it is um it, it's mostly worth it to just go ahead and fire it off and make a giant giant dragon and hold counter spell and there you go. So this gets to my next question: Is this a graveyard deck? Because traditionally graveyard decks use that zone as a resource, often as an extension of their hand size or a way to cheat on mana. And I think what this deck does is a it cheats on mana because it Murktide, but it's not really amplifying your hand size as much as making some of your cards hit harder, whether it's on Holy Heat or Dragon's Rage Champ. Mm-hmm. I'll go with my my first just gut take, and again you can check me on it. <laughs> is I I feel like it's more of a graveyard deck than Is It Phoenix is, because it's much harder to hard cast a Murktide Regent. Hmm. And a lot of times, like, you know, I turn one Leyline of the Void against me felt pretty backbreaking where it's like, I'm going to have more anemic threats. Uh, I'm never going to hard cast this Murktide region. I don't really know how I'm going to get out from underneath this, this card unless I can bounce it and then sort of claw my way back type thing. In the same turn. Yeah. In the same yeah, turn. Yeah. Somehow. Or bounce uh, it and counter on the way down. I, it did feel like graveyard hate was the most, uh, the most of some of the most effective stuff against me. And when I played it in the mirror match, it also felt like it was effective. And also it was the thing that destroyed me in the mirror match that I played as well. So as much as I sort of am reluctant to say that attacking the graveyard is an important way to attack this deck, I think you kind of have to, you know, I, and I saw a little bit of the gamut. Like I said, I saw sanctifier in fact that someone brought in against me, which is like, well, cool. It only gets rid of half of my cards, but it still was a pain. Stop my one drops. I I saw um, you know, I played Soul Guide Lantern against people, and that was pretty really good against in the mirror match where I would like wait for them to get up to like seven cards and pop it, you know, pop their graveyard when they weren't looking. I was just gonna say like the one and dones feel much less good though, like than which is typically the case. Like I feel like you could recover from a from a soul guide, soul guide or something like that fairly okay. Yeah, you are, but also I'm in a deck that has that has the ability to close pretty fast. And so sometimes it doesn't matter. Like if I was in a deck that couldn't close yeah. or was doing something a little bit different than than playing Leyline of the Void, I think is fine. I mean, I, I lost a match last night. I lost the mirror match that I was talking about last night. My opponent brought in surgical extraction against me. And Surgical Extracted, Ragavan, Dragon's Ray Chandler, and Murktide <laughs> in, in one game. You, you scooped to that, right? At that point, it's, no. it's just over. No, no, no. I got them down to one. And, you and I had two them? Brazen Borrow, Borrow. I had already spent all my bolts. They were at one. I was trying to land a Brazen Borrow. I had one Brazen Borrower in the last 14 cards of my deck. And I didn't get there. Um, but I, I, was not, uh, I was not giving up. But it I, it was one of those things where I was like, I don't think it's right to bring in Surgical Extraction to take out somebody's threats. But yeah. there are only 12 threats in this deck. So I, I don't know. I'm a little bit kind of like... Because if I had played two threats in the same turn and then they Surgical Extract one out of my graveyard, it's like, okay, I still have one Dragon's Rage Channeler you know, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with or, you know, 
So there was a little bit of tension there for sure. So I beat a Wheel of Sun and Moon where Mm -hmm. I had two dead regions in my hand. And I think what I learned in that game was I need to keep the board clear and count on monkeys and one ones, basically one one yeah. channelers and lightning bolts and, and bolts. Yeah. But I think that is a plan. And that's when it starts to feel like old school control where you're winning with a snapcaster mage. Yeah. That's why I like, by the way, putting a snapcaster mage into this deck because it does make you a little bit more, more resilient where you can get an extra, get an extra bolt out if you need it, or just have another two one to swing in with. I think that's a great thing to bring in as a one of. So here's my advice, and and I might change my mind on this later, but I feel like Graveyard Hate is best against this deck if you don't have any other way to beat Channeler. Or not Channeler, uh, Regent. Mm-hmm. Like, if, you, if you're if you running Terminate, I, I don't know if I would bring in something like Surgical or Soul Guide Lantern. Um, I would probably bring in Leyline. But if you have ways to beat Regent and, and kind of kill it when it hits the board, or even bounce it back to an opponent's hand after they've cleared their own graveyard, I would probably do that. If you're low on removal that tags Regent, that's when I would really strongly consider Graveyard Hate as a way to make it such that they just can't cast their finisher. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's a great assessment. I think the other thing you'll find is that, um, I was going to say not a lot of decks that run Terminate also run a lot of Graveyard Hate, but that's that's probably wrong. I I do think that when I'm playing like Black Red, though, I'm just bringing in Terminates against this deck and just going for it, not worrying about their graveyard mm-hmm. as much because I can just kill I can just kill Dragon Drake Channel or even if it's a three three, it doesn't matter. So yeah, yeah, and I feel like the decks that bring in something like Rest in Peace, they don't really have to worry about Unholy Heat as much, or like you can still use Unholy Heat and Bolt to tag their Planeswalkers if that's what they're counting mm-hmm. on you know what i mean yeah by the way there's no feeling like blowing up a karn liberated with an unholy heat <laughs> I, I gotta tell you like i, I lost against tron last night but it was so it was another match that was so so close and like killing an ugin after they decided to minus one their ugin to kill my my darcy was like oh you don't you don't remember how unholy heat works right. do you but as, we're, as long as we're talking about graveyard hate we all agree i think Dragon's Rage Channeler, even if it's just a 1-1 through your whole game, that surveil alone, being able to filter your draws, is so powerful that I think it's still good enough, even in the face of a rest in peace effect. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Shane gave me the nod. Yeah, it's good. I mean, good card. I think, I mean, again, I keep going back to, I think that's what makes a card one of the best creatures in the format, is, is just that. And the way it synergizes with other parts of the game, and it doesn't need to be a 3-3 flyer for it to be great. Yeah. Certainly helps. As long as we're on this control kick, can we talk about card advantage for a second? Mm-hmm. Love it. Dave, you mentioned iteration, mm-hmm. expressive iteration. Keeping ongoing card advantage is often a hallmark of control decks, which is a role that's frequently occupied by Planeswalkers, be it Jace or Big Teferi, especially in blue-white control decks. Or Cryptic Command. Yeah, by Cryptic Command, Snapcaster yeah. Range, sure. How does the Murktide deck do that since it runs no walkers? And is expressive iteration really just the only way to do that because it's a two-mana divination? Yeah, I mean, I think that that it's definitely expressive iteration is the main one. And then having access to, I mean, honestly, just the cantrips also help a lot. And Mishra's Bobble helps a lot as far as not really, it's not necessarily card advantage, but it is card control mm-hmm. that lets you up the quality of your draws which I think in some ways when you have the time and when you have cards that can both kill things that are in play and 
react to spells can help um, kind of function like card advantage. But that that is one of those things that makes it feel a little bit more like a shadow style card advantage than a control deck style card advantage where, you know, you do draw cards in shadow occasionally, but it's more about getting the right ones than it is about getting bulk. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I totally agree. I think what it lacks in card advantage, it makes up for in velocity and selection. Yeah, and R- Ragavan randomly does draw you a card, but honestly, the, in this deck in particular, like when I was playing Black-Red Delirium in Ragavan, you were you could be like, yeah, I'll cast this creature. Yeah, I'll do this. In this deck, I often felt like I couldn't use the treasure to cast their cards because I had to hold up Counterspell. Totally, totally agree. The only times I found myself casting opponent's cards were if it was a removal spell that I can use to to tag one of their tapped creatures, for instance. Exactly. Or, or if they had a cantrip and I wanted to, you know, just get through my deck a little more. I honestly forgot that I could cast those spells. Like, I mean, like, it just, I didn't need it. It was just those things where it's just like, oh, yeah, I forgot to click the little box of magic online half the time. Yeah. Because I was just winning anyway. I was just using the mana to cast Blood Moon instead. Yeah. This is the first time I got to play Counterspell in the format. Do you want to talk about Counterspell for like 10 seconds? How, how are you feeling casting Counterspell? I don't know if I can talk about it for just 10 seconds because of how effusive I feel. Okay. I want to hear Shane talk about Counterspell. Oh, no, we don't. He's going to ask us how to cast it. <laughs> I mean, listen, Dave, you and I both know Counterspell, one of my favorite spells of all time. Me too. One, you and I have both long dreamt of casting in modern, especially in a deck with counters and bolts. Yes. Four of each. Like, that's the package we've got tattooed on our chest. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I have one that one set of knuckles that says bolt, and the other one that says counterspell. It's like two. It's two lines on yeah, my but, knuckles. But it's flesh toned ink, so people on camera can't see. But right, exactly, you can't see it. Dave, you know that counterspell is exactly twelve letters, so it would fit across three three. Yeah, it's a good thing I have sixteen fingers, so that yeah. I can put bolt and counterspell. You're good. But Stan, was it good? Was it amazing? It was great, and lived up to all the hype. Just a two-mana answer to basically everything, I think. The two-mana is just so cheap, especially in a deck that generates treasure tokens. I I can't actually begin to tell you how important being able to have in a deck that generates treasure tokens was. Because it allowed Mm -hmm. me to do stuff like, on turn two, play a Dragon's Rage Channeler, only have one land up, and use my turn one monkey to make that second land, where I can then threaten to double spell if my opponent wants to cast something into a counter. Right. I, I don't think that this deck works without counterspell. I don't think so either. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, uh, I, I could be convinced that you could probably just play Mana League and it would probably be the same spell 80% of the time. But that 20% of the time that it's not oh, it, is oh, it huge. Matters. It matters. And you, and you know where it is super huge is uh, against big mana decks. Sure. I know there's not that many of them floating around right now, but like against Tron, when I was playing against that last night, it was amazing to be like, go ahead and cast literally anything. Yeah. Ugin, which I could counter with counters, or not Ugin, uh, Ulamog, which even though you lose cards to the cast trigger, you can still counter it, or uh, Karn Liberated, and know that, you know, if I had tried to spell pierce it, they had an extra urge's mind to be able to pay for it. Mm hmm. I think if Counterspell didn't exist, you can probably get by with Logic Knot because you fill your yard with so many cards. And I think Remand would also be okay just because you you can play early threats that apply a lot of pressure in, in the early to mid game. Yeah, I, I just don't think it... I would think it would be a totally different deck. You you would yeah, have to it would be, be faster if it was yeah. Remand and, you know, you'd have to have another big... You'd have to have other big threats that closed fast if you're playing that, so... I don't know. I don't, I don't think this deck works without Counterspell. 
personally. Yeah. Now can we talk about sequencing? <laughs> yes. Let's talk about the real, the real stuff now. We, we hinted at this earlier. What's the ideal turn one threat? Assuming you have both monkey and, and channeler in hand. I mean, the main reason, the main thing that I think is that I just play monkey because I actually am happy for them to kill the monkey. Mm-hmm. Shock and the then, monkey. Yeah. Yeah. Shock the monkey. And then I'm, I'm much more interested in trying to have dragons rage channelers survive. And so that's just kind of how I approached it. Um, and so I leaned towards playing the monkey first. Totally agree. I think the scenarios where I would lead with DRC are henceforth. I'm on the draw, and my opponent played a turn one threat, and I need to dig for a removal spell off of Surveil. Mm-hmm. Or I have a bobble in hand, and I want to trigger Surveil right away. Likely for a similar condition, because I'm on the draw. And yeah. you know, I'm looking for something with that bobble and Surveil package to, to basically play against whatever my opponent is doing. For sure. I mean, for me, a lot of times it was looking for lands. When I right. had when I had a sketchy keep and was like, okay, I, I need to play Channeler, Bobble, try to surveil into a land, see what happens. Yeah, I, I mean, likewise, you, you make a great point, Dave. Like, I think it makes your your bad keeps a little better, potentially. Dragon's Rage Channeler does. But oh, yeah, also, for sure. And, and also, like, if you're digging for sideboard cards, like maybe post-board, and, and you kept monkeys in your deck, and you didn't have a sideboard card in your opening hand. I could see an argument for leading with Dragon Race Channeler because it'll actually help you find, you know, that artifact hate a little faster. Yeah, I totally agree. On the play, especially game one, I think Monkey's almost always the correct early play just because it can be both a lightning rod or it kind of just runs away with the game on its own. Yeah, it's absurd. Okay, so what else do you have in mind as far as sequencing goes? So we talked about the turn one threat idea. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about whether or not it's okay to turn off Delirium to make your Merktide Regent bigger. I don't think there's anything left to say about that. What about whether, if you're not going to play a threat, and you have Serum Visions or Thought Scour, Thought Scour. to play, yeah. which, which one do you do? What scenarios do you do those? I think it depends on what else is in your hand. If you have a Delirium or a Regent in your hand, I would go for the Thought Scour so I can turbo out one of those graveyard payoff cards. If I don't have any threats or don't have you know any action that's specific toward the game, that's when I would probably lead with a Serum Visions because that's the card that'll actually help me find something specific. Mm-hmm. I think if I'm on the play, I th- Serum Visions more often mm-hmm. because I have the chance to double spell the next turn more frequently without having to have interaction up. You know what I mean? Like I get to have someone have their second turn when I have two mana instead of having their third turn. Cause you know, with the third turn, you have to watch out for like cascade cards and lots of other stuff. Um, so I might take the slower path if I'm on the play in that sense. I also think that serum visions as always has been better when you again, have a sketchy keep and you're like, I really need a land (laughs) is what I really need just to make sure I draw another land. So if you keep, you know, a two lander and you're like, I really want to make sure I get to my third one. Then I would start digging with serum visions right off the, off the bat. Cause thought scour doesn't really help you get there with any kind of strategy. You know, it's just a raw, mm-hmm. I get an extra draw. Maybe it'll be a land. I mean, there's some, of course, there's some thought about what you're, repre- what you're representing because thoughts car is an instant speed spell. You can just play it at the end of your opponent's turn if they don't do something. And, but that's of course, if you're maybe, you know, in this deck, you, if you do have spell pierce, you can represent spell pierce quite nicely. You don't even have to have two blue mana 
representing a countering spell. So that's an advantage there. I think, it, you know, of course it's situational, but the Serum Visions, because it's a sorcery, this is me talking about all the blue cantrips I've cast in my life. <laughs> yeah, you're so well-known, so on brand for you. Uh, I mean, I think maybe because I play them less, maybe it may, maybe it's just like, here's my, here's my newbie take on them. And again, maybe it's the wrong one. It's just like, Serum Visions has like the lowest power in, a, in the vacuum for me. Uh, a lot of times, especially in this deck, and it's almost just like, let's get the max value out of it, and it's probably earliest on in the game. I think that's great, actually. I think that's a really good point, because it is one of the weakest cards in the deck, if not the... What about if you have Dragon's Rich Channeler on the board, and then you want to cast the Thought Scour? What are you thinking or doing with your Surveil Triggers at that point? I mean, you're just auto-binning things, aren't you? Just trying to get four cards into your graveyard? I mean, you kind of have to, right? So I frequently did that because I care about getting Merktides out as quickly as possible. But mm -hmm. uh, Aspiring Spike wrote an article for CFB about this deck where he said it's okay to thought scour your opponents, which I think is maybe true sometimes if your opponent isn't on a graveyard deck, which is Tron. <laughs> like basically everything else has Lurus or Unholy Heat. I mean, there's there's lots of reasons to like thoughts carry your opponent, right? Because a lot of times people are stacking the top of their deck with different effects, right? And so that's that's the main thing I would be looking at, whether that's um, when they cast their own cantrip or their own spell that scries and they put something on top, whether, you know, then you thought scouring them in response to that is, is awesome. Um, I think that, you know, having a look at someone's library with Bauble and then thought scouring them if you don't like what you see there is like a fun play too. It, you know, it's like a it's like a middle line thing where sometimes you don't you don't really know what you're milling them into when you do that. But I guess you do know that you're getting rid of a removal spell or whatever. Like it's a little bit of a kind of chase fade seal thing where you'd rather see something you don't care about with Mishra's Bobble than taking a shot and milling them to something better with Thought Scour. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of reasons. I don't think I would ever just target my opponents with Thought Scour. Uh, unless it was one of those situations where, like, for some somehow I knew that they knew the top of their deck or I knew the top of their deck. That's the only times I could see doing it. Otherwise, it's just like fill fill up that graveyard, keep delirium, get Murktide big, you know? Yeah, if anything, DRC and Thoughtscour is like this sweet little two card combo where it's like, now I get to pay for four mana of a future Murktide region. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is that something to keep in mind is when you have a. Make sure you take those blind shots at making Dragon's Rage Chandler get Delirium when you have a Thought Scour in hand. Because I, I messed up one game where I should have won, where I didn't, um, I didn't Thought Scour in response to a non-Deliriumed Unholy Heat from somebody targeting my Chandler. Where what I should have done was immediately Thought Scoured to try to get go from two card types in the graveyard to four card types in the graveyard to save my Dragon's Rage Channeler. So just remember that that's an instant speed way to make your Channeler bigger. Okay, so any other things that we want to check off on as far as kind of like sequencing things? I think that we've covered some of the bigger things that come up. You know, you pretty much always want to hold up a counter spell when you can, and it very much depends on what deck you're playing against. But my, my general thought is keep up a counter spell. That's kind of the only thing that we haven't talked about with this deck. Mm -hmm. That's maybe the most controlly attribute of this deck. So as someone who feels like they are just learning how to be even moderately capable with decks like this still is, I think that it's this is really sequencing the deck. 
honestly. Like, that's just what I would... Like, this deck is all about how you use your cards to get the most advantage. Like, how am I seeing the most cards? How am I filling the graveyard in the most efficient manner if that's what I want to be doing? So it's like, what's my game plan? Do I need to be holding up interaction? Do I need to be powering out things? Am I the aggro? Am I the control? Uh, How is that going to take shape with the texture of my hand, with the way the game's going? And I think it's really hard to be... Uh, descriptive and to sort of, or be, and to really have hard and fast rules about sequencing in a deck like this because it's it's so contextual more than a lot of different decks because the tools just do similar things but very different in a lot of ways like you mentioned Dave it's like do I Serum Visions or do I Thought Scour do I uh, and like another example might be do I what am I? What am I? Th- I'm thinking about this happened uh, more than a few times. It's like, well, when do I mistress bobble before I serum visions? Like all these little kind of edges add up to be something big, especially with Dragon's Rage Channeler. Now the the surveil interacts with your uh, cantrips in a very interesting fashion, and so you can mess up, I think, pretty easily or sort of miss the edges that come into play for sure. I mean, I think the the biggest thing I would say here is that I don't think after playing this and after talking right now, I think the one thing you should keep in mind is you don't really have the tools to be aggressive with your threats. You generally don't. Yeah. You need to enter, keep in mind, like it's okay to play monkey on turn one, but you need to have a plan for when they kill it, or you need to assume that they're going to kill it. And then killing it needs to be part of your game plan. And then if they don't kill it, that's great. You get advantage off of it. You get treasure off of it, but you can't play Mon- play Ragavan on turn one and then go, oh, they had Lava Dart again. It's like, yeah, they had Lava Dart. They had Lightning Bolt. They had something to kill it. Like you need to, your plan needs to include them killing your creatures. And because you're so threat light, that tends to make me feel like maybe your first threat you play down and see how it goes as far as whittling their hand down. But after that, you have to be a little more precious and make sure you have it on tap a bit more. That's the last thing I guess I would say as far as like heuristics, heuristics to think about when you're playing this deck. And so that would lead me to lead me towards keeping up counter magic as much as I can, both to disrupt your opponent's plans, but also to buy yourself time to play your threats when assuming that you'll also have counter spells with your threats later. All right. Well, we all played the deck rare, rare, a rare occurrence. We all played the same deck in, a, in the same week. But let's talk about how everybody did. So I did a league with this. I had the excellent uh, 2-0 into 2-3 uh, through some misplays and kind of like bad <laughs> badness on my part. Um, but uh, Shane, how did you do with it? Did you league or did you just practice room this? Oh, I did. I did not league. I had my my when Stan introduced me this this uh, early in, the, in this episode. I was going to be like, what do I do here? Do I talk about how busy I've been, like an old man? But yeah, my my week and weekend were bonkers. So I base I just crammed. I crammed some like uh, tournament practice room games, and I had I think I played like four in matches, mm-hmm. and I definitely felt like I felt the power of the deck. It felt great. Um, I I I lost when I should have lost, and I won when I should have won. And I think that there's it it feels you know a lot of times people will say I feel like I'm playing a different format. Like I feel like I'm and I, I didn't feel quite like that, but. Mm. I did feel like it was dang good, but our boy Stan has been doing quite well, I think. Now, Stan did write all these show notes and has been yeah. playing the deck the most. He and I played it against each other in paper. I won one match. He won one match. I was on Blue Red Prowess, of course. Mm-hmm. But Stan, in the E-World, how's it, how's it been going playing Murktide? You know, 
I'm really grateful for that match against Jan Prowess because it taught me how to navigate that matchup. Because um, I needed to beat Prowess in order to use this deck in order to qualify for the Mana Trader Swiss, which I did. You did it. So yeah, I played 10 matches, my first 10 matches in Mana Traders, and I went 8-2, and two, qualified with an 80% win record on this deck. Nice. My man. Heck yeah. I lost to Hammer Time, Mono White Hammer, and I also lost to the Grieving End version of Living End. So it's like Living End plus Grief. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe Solitude in there. I don't remember. Um, but otherwise, I felt like this deck was really good, and I felt like I was piling it pretty effectively in general. And there were some times when I like misplayed and clicked through a turn, and I still won, which always feels good. But it does feel like Bolt plus Counterspell is a pretty good package of mid-range control cards that kind of give you game against practically everything. So if you're against a deck that doesn't care about counter spells like humans, for instance. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have enough spot removal where you can maybe get by. I will say, I think that that was the toughest matchup that I faced in the league that I played last night. It was I played against Jeskai humans and mm-hmm. it just shredded me because they did the thing that humans gets to do. And that, this is one of those things that makes me think that this deck, not that it won't be on the top for very long, but that it won't be oppressively on the top, because I do think that there are strategies that work well against it because them going vile turn one vile into like a couple of one drops. And then, um, the next turn playing reflecting mage on my Murktide Regent. That was hard. That was tough to keep up with. And then they're suddenly attacking with three, four, fours into a board where I just have a one, one, like that's not gonna, it's not gonna work, unfortunately. So it felt a little bit like that kind of deck is possibly good against this deck. And so I would keep an eye on that. If you are playing this deck to keep in mind, you need to have a good plan against those kind of like wide creature decks like that. Yeah. I mean, I generally feel like this deck can get outclassed buy a lot of stuff if they can deal with your Murktide regions. And I think that's what you're getting at, Dave, right? Which is just like, if you're presenting a clock with your creatures and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm using my removal to kind of get rid of them, but there's plenty of decks that can outrun this deck's removal. And there's plenty of decks that can present threats that are more aggressive than what you're doing as long as they keep Murktide off. So if they're Brazen Borrowing it, if they're Reflector Maging it, if they're Vapor Snagging it, (laughs) all that kind of stuff can really set you back. Because if you're delving six cards out of your graveyard, I mean, this deck does fill the graveyard, but not that quickly. Mm -hmm. I will say, you know, with regards to humans or any unfavorable matchup, most unfavorable matchups, I think blue... Red Control, Blue Moon, if you will, has um, a storied history in Modern and has kind of proven time and again that it can be reshaped to deal with almost any metagame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you find yourself in a position, Dave, where you're really struggling with humans, that's probably just a sign that maybe you play three Blood Moons in your sideboard and a Sweeper and know when to set out your counterspells. But here's the problem. So this human's build is not vulnerable to Blood Moon, and maybe it needs some sweepers. I didn't have any sweepers in the side. Right. But, and, and the um, deck isn't really running any right now. And I yeah. think that's just because the metagame doesn't necessarily need sweepers other than Chatterstorm. Yeah. And so all I'm saying is that it might... I, I think that it can rotate. Like, the wheel might turn here, and, like, 
you might see some stuff like that. Because if you if you remember too, like when Death Shadow was really really good, Humans was sort of the deck that came along and gave Death Shadow a really hard time, and kind of made Death Shadow decline some in the metagame three years ago. We're talking at this point, so I think that it's really Reflector Mage is a really really good card against yeah. Murktide because Vapor Snag. If you're not an aggressive deck and you Vapor Snag them, like really Blue Red Prowess is the only deck that can run Vapor Snag, right? Mm -hmm. And they get to keep attacking. And that's great for them because, you know, you can, they can win off of that. Um, Brazen Borrower can be run by a bunch of different decks. And so that's, that's helpful because it turns into a threat itself. But um, not being able to cast Murktide again after Reflector Mage is tough. Tough, tough, tough. Because then a lot of times you are set up to recast it, but you just have to sit there and take eight damage, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, I mean, if if this deck, if this is like kind of the bet I were, we could really tell that this deck was like let's say twenty to twenty five percent of the, the the top tier meta, then I that's I can see humans making a huge comeback, right? Because right. it's like we have Cavern of Souls, we have Bounce Spells, we have a Clock. It's all the kind of stuff that you would hate to see in against this deck. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting that you lost to humans on I lost to Living End, where it was a similar case where Living End just kind of flipped my board and graveyard, and being able to answer Regents that way, and also then outclassing all of my creatures because they had like striped river winders or whatever, right? And they just get so big, and they end up having so many more creatures than you. Then that is a position where this feels like I I didn't have. Leyland of the Void, and that's kind of like the one thing. But I, but my point, just to reiterate, is like I think this deck, being a control deck at its heart, can kind of shape itself to use a lot of the main pieces of this package, whether it's Merktide, Counterspell, Bolt, Ragavan, DRC, to actually have a plan in a lot of different conditions. And I think that's yeah. one of the reasons why we've seen post-MH2 control decks sort of evolve and go from Jeskai to Esper to this and so on is because we have like this really powerful core group of cards that can support a lot of different color strategies. Yeah. So bottom line, Stan, you're going, you're going to be playing the Swiss. Yeah. I don't, I, that's probably in a week or two from now, right? It's probably not right away. Yeah. I think it's the weekend of the 23rd. Okay. 24th. Do you, are you thinking that you're going to go in playing this deck or are you going to stay open and just keep an eye out for what else is good two weeks from now? Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, I try not to play mirror matches if I can avoid them and I would hate to have to do a bunch of mirrors. So you're not going to switch to hammer is what you're saying. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the, I think hammer might prove itself as the deck to beat just because I've seen that deck continue to get better and better over the last few weeks. We saw it take over the Sunday challenge this weekend. Um, I think it's really good against this deck as well, though I think red base decks especially have a lot of tools to potentially beat hammer. So maybe I can just like stretch my sideboard where it's like playing a lot of hammer hate rust, rust effects. Mm -hmm, I, just, mm -hmm. I just made that up. Shatter I, effects perhaps. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what I'm playing in the Swiss. Um, I'm I'm going to try to stay pretty open-minded. I might play red-black, to be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, I think that's an indication, though, of what you think about this deck deep down, though, right? It's like, it's a good deck, but you don't feel like it, like Shane was saying, you don't feel like you're playing a different game right now. You're going to stay open and yeah. think about it the next couple of weeks. It's not like maybe last year, I think, it, you know, last year when you're thinking about preparing for big online tournaments or whatever, where you're mm -hmm. like, I'm going to do Ponza, you're you right. know, like, and I'm going to, I'm going to do Ponza in the, qualifier i'm gonna do ponza in the swiss like whatever like i'm ponza right now i think it's the best deck or or whatever 
but I mean, that's a different format. It's a format that was just way more established, right? Yeah. And we're still in flux. Like in the best is it deck next week might have a floaty skull thing, whatever his name is. <laughs> Demi-Lich. Flame skull? Demi-Lich. Yeah. Right. It might have Demi-Lich, the, the fake floating skull. Yeah, I'm going to see if there's any new Beholder decks post-D&D. I really like the Beholders. I'm just going to pivot to five-color elementals. I'm just, I why not? Should. I mean, I should probably play Living End, because I think that's the other deck that people might be sleeping on. We'll see. Anything else to say about how to play against this deck? We touched on Graveyard Hate. We touched on Terminate. We, we've been losing the humans in Hammer Time. Play Path. Play Bounce. You know, stop relying on Prismatic Ending. And it's sweet, but, you know... Sometimes the classics are classics for reasons. Deck was good. Thank you guys for for joining me in this journey. I love Blue Red Control. I'm thrilled that it's so good right now and that uh, we we all I think had a fun time playing with it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I would I would play it again for sure. I mean, I bought the cards for it. So I have the Murktide Regents I think are in my mailbox right now. Whew. Big big spenders Modern Horizons 2. Sorry. That's a game we play. I, I do own this deck in paper as well. I actually played it at the LGS, which was fun, and I, I lost some matches just because I forgot how to play in paper. <laughs> like There's so many like muscle memory and reflexes and, and physical nuances that I completely forgot about. Absolutely. But it was nice to look at other people's trade binders. Until then, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, or just reach out, say hello, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. You can tell me what I should play in the Manor Trader Swiss. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can support the show while playing Magic as well with Mana Traders. If you sign up for a Mana Traders rental account, you can get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards with promo code THEDIVEDOWN2021. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and counter that spell! They're all sold out. No one has Katakis. <laughs>